Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian Podcast. This is Season 9, Episode 10, and I want to wish you all a Happy New Year. Uh, I've really enjoyed getting a chance to record this last year, all the wonderful authors I've had a chance to talk to and be able to present them to you and let you hear their voices and talk about their work. And I am very excited to have as my first guest on this year's um, episode, Sarah Gailey, who is a Hugo Award-winning author of speculative fiction, short stories, and essays. They also have been a finalist for the Hugo, Nebula, and Locus Awards for multiple years, which is pretty impressive. Tor Books published Sarah's best-selling author novel debut, Magic for Liars, in 2019. We spoke about their more recent novel, Just Like Home, and the new original comic book series with Boom Studios, Eat the Rich, which are both available now at All Better Bookstores and Online Merchants. They have published their shorter works and essays in Mashable, The Boston Globe, Vice, Torcom, and The Atlantic. Their work has been translated into seven different languages and published worldwide. I had a really great time talking to them, and I know you're going to love this uh, conversation and uh, get a chance to listen to the author talk about their own work and their own voice. With that, I'm going to go right to the conversation. Welcome to the Well Season Librarian Podcast. Today, I'm very happy to have Sarah Gailey on the podcast, who is the author of River of Teeth, which was a finalist for the 2012 Nebula Award for Best Novella, the 2018 Hugo Award for Best Novella, and the 2018 Locus Award for Best Novella. In 2018, they also wrote the Hugo Award for Best Fan Writer. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. You began your professional life in the theater, and then you made a move to writing. Uh, how did this come about for you? Where did you realize that aha moment where you're, you knew you were going to be a writer? You know, it, there was some distance between those two things. Um, I, I was very, I was very invested in theater. Um, unfortunately, the community theater kind of experiences that I had led me to a place where I was like, I don't think this is good for me. I don't think I'm good for it. Um, and I left the theater community, but I stayed connected to the, the wonderful friends that I had made during my time there. And one of them started getting into becoming a writer. He had been, um, he had been experimenting with playwriting and then moved into the short fiction space. And I actually started thinking about writing through him as I had been giving him some like pretty in-depth editorial feedback on his work that made me realize, I think I, I think I know and love and understand story a lot better than I ever would have thought. Um, but I think that that theater experience gave me so much to carry forward into my writing career, even just in having this conversation with you right now. Um, I'm able to, to talk to people and represent myself so much more easily than I think I would have if I hadn't had the experience in theater that I did. And it also, frankly, made the publishing world seem really stable and easy to navigate by comparison. You began your career with many short stories and you succeeded with your story, Look, after writing 27 stories in a year. Talk to us about this time of discovering yourself as a writer. Gosh, I, I just couldn't stop writing. I mean, I, I started and I had kind of a hiccup where I got pretty uh, bluntly and severely discouraged from pursuing writing by that, the same friend who uh, was the reason I, I wanted to write in the first place. And I, I really kind of tried to take that discouragement to heart. Um, I, I really had a period of my life there where I was like, okay, I'm going to be too discouraged to write anymore. And the stories just kept coming. Um, and so I ended up continuing to write and it was a real fire hose of creativity for me. I, I remember just, I would write a short story in, in a day. I would write a short story over a weekend and I was just cranking them out. And you know, some of them were not very good. Some of them were excellent. Some of them I'm very proud of. Some of them I look back and I'm like, well, that wasn't anything and that's okay. <laughs> not every not every story needs to be a winner, but um, it, it was just like turning on a light switch in a room that is full of treasures. Like I, I, just, I just remember this feeling of incredible abundance um, and gratitude and excitement. Who are your writers growing up would inspire, who inspired you 
when you were young, before you started writing? You know what? I, I, I think the writer who inspired and shaped me most when I was young was probably Clive Barker. Um, I, at a very young age, loved his, his work for children and young adults. He wrote um, The Thief of Always, which is, I think we would classify it as middle grade now. I don't know if that category quite existed when it came out. Um, and then, of course, his, uh, his series Aberat, um, which is more, you know, just for young adults. And I read those books over and over. His, his mastery of language, of course, is legendary. And he also really delivers in those books visceral fear, which not a lot of people write for children. Um, the only other author I can think of off the top of my head who really aims that kind of visceral terror of the world at specifically at children, not, not just at teens, is um, Lewis Sacker in the Wayside School books. And I was, I was very into those and shaped by them. Of course, I also, um, oh gosh, I'm trying to remember the name of an author right now. Hang on, let me look this up because it's, it should be at the top of my mind, but it's not, which feels no very worries. silly. Uh, oh, Garth Nix. Um, oh yeah. The, the other author who really, I think, I think molded me was Garth Nix with the, the Sebriel series, um, which again, uh, very complicated, very frightening um thrilling the the big difference between my experience of all those authors of course is that as an adult I connect with the several books the exact same way um you know I've, I've revisited them as an adult I love the audiobooks Tim Curry reads them and what a what an experience listening to Tim Curry voice Moggett um you know and they're wonderful and the same with the Wayside School books. I revisited those and I was like, oh, these are delightful. These are these are delightfully weird and off-center. And the big difference is Clive Barker as an author, of course, also has written quite a lot for adults. And I didn't know that. As a kid, I was like, this guy's one of my favorite writers. His stuff freaks me out. I love it. And it, then I was like, I wonder what else he's written. I should, I should take a look. And I, I remember opening Books of Blood uh, when I was pretty young and going, I don't think I'm quite ready for this one yet. That leads me to the next question. And it, I think it's interesting because as a librarian, I often see the same authors in the adult section as well as the children's section, or even sometimes all three, uh, young adult, uh, adult and children's. And we, I think many authors in the past, although not too many, like Roald Dahl wrote for adults and children, but I think we we have a fear, I think, of getting typed. And I think you, had, didn't you have a, a fear of being typed as a young adult writer when you started writing young adult uh, fiction? You know, my, my fear was a little bit less of being typed and a little more of not having the craft, the, the craft level that I needed to write for teens. Um, teen, teenagers, especially teenagers today, are incredibly smart and thoughtful and complicated in ways that media often doesn't give them credit for. Um, and, and they think about the world in a way that I didn't as a teenager. As a teenager, I was thinking about the world on the level of like, you know, kind of repeating a lot of things that I had heard because we didn't have access to the degree of information that we have now and the, and the degree of global communication that we have now. So I, I remember spouting opinions that I hadn't I hadn't necessarily thought all the way through, but I was just like, this feels right in my gut. And the funny thing is those opinions are things that I, I espouse now as an adult in a much more thoughtful way, right? Like um, like abolishing the police and the carceral system. Um, but at that time, I didn't have backup for the ideas that, that I had. I just had the gut feeling of like, this is right or this is wrong. And sometimes I was correct and sometimes I wasn't. Um, where teens today have access to so much more information and so much more communication and conversation. They're very thoughtful and active in the world. They are very active both in their communities and in the world as a whole. Um, and even at the time that I was thinking about writing When We Were Magic, which is my young adult novel, I remember saying to my literary agent, I just don't think I'm cut out for it. YA is a space where incredible degrees of nuanced conversation happen. And I don't want to jam my my thoughtless self in there and 
screw up and, and, and make a mess. Um, and I'm fortunate in that my agent encouraged me pretty strongly and, and said, you know, you have things to say that that space needs to hear. Um, because otherwise I, I think I would, I think I would have run in the other direction, uh, to try and avoid the level of challenge that I was frightened of there. I, I am a teen librarian and I work with, you know, I, I work with youth a lot. And the one thing that I see so often is YA novels are very influential and can be a game changer for a young person. Uh, they have a lot of ideas and ideas can be something that can be transformative. Do you get a lot of feedback or when you go to signings or you go to conventions, do you get a lot of feedback from the fans that, about how your work affects their lives? I do. I do. And it, it is, it, it's really staggering. Um, you know, I, I get from teens, the kind of feedback that I tend to get is this is the first time a book has made me feel seen. Um, you know, my writing has a tendency to be very internal and very oriented toward emotional reality and kind of interpersonal complexity. The, the relationships are not straightforward, they're messy. And a lot of teens will tell me, you know, first of all, this is the only time I've read a book that has my pronouns in it. Um, and they'll also tell me this is the only time I felt like someone understands my friendships, which is very profoundly validating for me. <laughs> And then, of, of course, from adults, you know, I hear pretty different things, um, but they, the things that move me most are um, when people say that my books make them feel seen in times of grief. Um, my, my books for adults have, now that I think about it, quite a through line of grief and especially familial loss and loss of familial connection. And I hear from adults both at in-person events and um, through my website, they'll, they'll send me emails through my contact form talking about their own experiences of grief and how reading my work helped them connect with their grief in a way they hadn't been able to before. And that that is some of the stuff that keeps me writing during times like now when I'm editing a book and the book does not want to be edited and I'm like, why do I do this job? <laughs> Your book, Magic for Liars, was written in 2018. Was this, do you think this was a game changer for you career-wise? Oh, absolutely. Abs 100%. Um, Magic for Liars, I thought I, I thought I wrote earlier. Oh, no, I did. I, that, that one I was finishing the second draft in 2018. Gosh. Um, yeah, that, I mean, that was my first novel. And... Publishing novels is a totally different game from publishing short fiction. I had been publishing short stories and novellas up until that point. And I'd been very successful and I'd been having a great time. And I kind of felt like, you know, wow, I really know what I'm doing. I've got my, I've got my finger on the pulse. I'm crushing this. And then my, my agent uh, before signing me asked if I would consider writing a novel and again just like with YA I said absolutely not that sounds way too hard I, I, I don't know how to do that and my now agent said well I can't represent you based on novellas because at the time um, this feels so long ago but at the time novellas were not considered a lucrative endeavor novellas were considered a weird little armpit of publishing world and publishing them was very experimental and risky and tour.com was just starting to pick them up and and market them using novel publishing um kind of uh, approaches and, and tactics and so a, a novella wasn't a smart bet for an agent who makes their of course they make their money on commission they take a percentage of whatever you make and my agent said you know i love this novella idea you have but i can't represent you based on a novella you, you need to write a novel, that's where the publishing money is. And I really wanted to work with this agent. I was like, this person is a genius and I, I would love to work with them. So I, did, I came up with a novel pitch for Magic for Liars in order to be able to work with, with uh, Dong Wan Song, who I think is the best in the business. Nice. And um, it was completely different. I mean, writing a novel is a completely different set of muscles and editing a novel is completely different. And, and then 
the process of marketing and publishing a novel, totally different. Not as different from marketing and publishing a novella as it would have been five years before because I got to work with Tor.com on those novellas and they, they put a lot of support behind them. But I still didn't, I didn't have any possible understanding of the scale that I was going to be working on. You know, I ended up getting to go on a, a book tour all across the country and see tons of people and, and meet booksellers and librarians, which was like my favorite thing to do. Um, and it, it was just, it was really incredible, but it was definitely a different altitude for me. For the uh, listeners who have not read Magic for Liars, can you tell us a little bit about the book and what inspired you to write it? Yeah, so Magic for Liars is a book about a non-magical private detective who is investigating a murder at a private high school for magical teens where her estranged twin sister works. Um, it is very obviously in conversation with another series of books that takes place at a magical school. Um, and at the time of writing it, I had a pretty different understanding of that series than I have now um, because the, the creator of that series had not taken her mask off and revealed herself to be a virulent, poisonous bigot. At the same time, I was pretty aware of what I considered to be some shortcomings in the storytelling, um, one of which was you know, very straightforward relationships, very simple relationships. And one of which was just the high school experience. Those books take place uh, at a magical school that is modeled off of you know, very elite private schools in Britain. And I'm from California. I've went to public schools in California, which was its own, its own experience. And when I was writing this book, I thought, I, I want this to feel like a real high school. I want this to feel like a high school that is not shaped by history and legacy but is shaped by the students in it who attend it and, and who make spaces their own everywhere they go every day, all the time. Teens are carving out the world around them to make a place for themselves in it. Um, and then of course, I, I also wanted this to be about the experience of being in a place where you don't belong. Um, Ivy Gamble, the protagonist is the non-magical half of her twin set. Her, her sister has magic powers and the resentment and layers of history between them drive the book in a really big way. Um, and, and it made me wanna put this book together from the perspective of someone entering a space where they don't belong and trying to belong there. Instead of being amazed by the place they're in, they are resentful and kind of trying to become invasive in that space. Um, and it it opened up so much for me to explore in that story. And I'm, I'm so thankful that I had the chance to do it. I wanna to talk to you a little bit about Echo Wife and uh, how it was a benchmark or a turning point in your career. Yeah, so the Echo Wife is my second novel. Um, it is the story of a brilliant scientist who has invented cloning and who discovers that her husband has created a clone of her to improve upon her and has been having an affair with that clone. Um, it, it was a really different book. You know, Magic for Liars, I kind of remember writing in like a sun-soaked office um, with the glow of, of inspiration all around me. And the Echo Wife I wrote in an empty apartment in the rain and the dark um, with no furniture as I was processing my, my own divorce. And it was such a different creative headspace and the way the Echo Wife came out of me was so much more powerful um, and so much more violent. It was very, it was very much kind of an emotional uh, upheaval for me during that period. And the way the book landed was really different. You know, Magic Fillers, people were very excited about it. It was a very popular book. People enjoyed it a lot. It's it's a fun pitch, you know, it, it's, it's snappy. Um, we get a lot of like Veronica Mars comps for that one. 
and of course, uh, a lot of comps to that other popular series, The Magical School, where the echo life is darker and grittier and more cruel. And so people connected with it in a really different way. One was like, I'm taking this to read on my vacation. I'm going to read this with my friends, with my book club, and we're going to have a nice time. And the other one was, I'm sitting down with this book and I've, I've never felt so alone <laughs> as I do in this story, but in a, in a way that I really connect with. And I think the echo life was a turning point in my career because it, it represented me finding what I want to be doing in my work. Um, it is an, it is a, a complicated, thorny, mean book. And I found that every time a reader would say, I didn't like this character, but I identified with her. I would go, yes, that's it. That's what I want to be doing. And so that's, I think that, that that book and the reception to it shifted the trajectory of my career because that's what I pursue now is, is how, how do I make you feel a connection with someone, even if you don't like them, even if you don't think they're doing the right thing and you don't even think they want to do the right thing, how do you still find your way to them? And I, I think that has be, really become my project. Can we talk about um, Just Like Home and how it's connected to the other two books you wrote? Yes, uh, so Just Like Home came out this year, 2022, which is unbelievable. It feels like a hundred years ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's my third novel. It is firmly anchored in the horror space. And it's the story of a woman who returns to her childhood home to care for her dying mother and confront the legacy of her serial killer father. Um, it, it's the way that um, my publishing deal was structured with Tor Books, who all three of these novels were published with, was that all three books were on the same contract. And I didn't intend for them to relate to each other at all. They're not sequels. They're not, they're not explicitly connected, but they are an unofficial um, triptych of books with unlikable female protagonists struggling with grief and identity. All three of them are very internal. Um, I, I was joking with my agent the other day that with these three books, I just kept making the cast smaller and smaller and smaller. And if I had one more book on this contract, it would just be someone sitting in a room by themselves saying, here's all my feelings. And it's, it's, they really all are tied together by this thread of being about women who will make the wrong choices and do bad things, not because they're trapped, but because they're human. And that's really what those three books are about. This episode is sponsored by Culinary Historians of Northern California, a Bay Area educational group dedicated to the study of food, drink, and culture in human history. To learn more about this organization and their work, please visit their website at www.chnorcal.org. At the height of the pandemic in 2020, you wrote uh, two novellas, Upright Women, and you also published uh, When We Were Magic. Can you talk about those books and what it was like um, publishing and kind of promoting these books during the quarantine? Yeah, that was a bonkers time for me. Um, of course, When We Were Magic is my uh, young adult novel, and then Upright Women Wanted is my anti-fascist queer pulp western um, and that one's a novella from tour.com who also published uh, River of Teeth and promoting one book is is really a gutting experience it's very difficult um, as an author you end up talking so much about your work and reaching back into the past to say okay this thing that I wrote two years ago here's what I was trying to say and here's what I want to say now um, and it's a very strange, it's a very strange experience. These books came out uh, within one month of each other. And the first one that came out, the 
launch event that I did for it was the last time I left the house prior to COVID lockdown. I remember being at the front of a room full of people. I know it was wearing masks then. We, we didn't really have any idea what was going on. The headlines were still saying that COVID was not in the U.S., but I was seeing immunologists who I fortuitously follow on social media saying, no, it's here. Um, and I was I was hearing healthcare workers who were friends of mine saying, it's here, It's I'm sure it's here. Um, and I remember sitting in front of that room full of people and being like, I, I don't think I can do this again in a month. And then going, you know, uh, a lot of times after a launch event, you'll go and get drinks with some friends nearby. And I was sitting at a table with some friends and some fans who had, who had followed us over from the event. And one of them was talking about how the next morning she was leaving to go on a cruise, but her husband had a fever. And I just thought, this is the, this is the prologue shit. Like this is <laughs> where, this is the stuff that we will remember in a year when we are fighting each other with spears. Um, this, this isn't right. And I got home and I sat down with my family at, at home and I'd been talking to them about my concerns about COVID and saying like, I'm worried about this. And we sat down after that event and I said, we're not going out again. It's not safe. We, I don't want us going to the store. I don't want us ordering takeout because at the time we didn't know if fomite transmission was an issue, right? If like, if like things on surfaces could give it to you. Um, yeah. And I was like, maybe I'm being paranoid. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm reading way too much into stuff. It's completely possible. I'm very mentally ill and I do that all the time, but I don't want to risk our lives and I would rather you make fun of me a month from now. And so um, one of the members of my household called in sick to work the next day. And that afternoon we got the report of the first like reported case in Los Angeles. Um, and by the next day, her workplace was closing down and they were like, okay, your work from home for for a little while and I remember looking at them and saying we should be prepared for this this pandemic to last for at least the next six weeks and it felt so drastic and we made a whole meal plan and we like bought masks and set up a, a place for them to go and you know I, I wore gloves to the grocery store and, and we did this whole thing and four weeks after that I had another book come out and we did a virtual launch and it was the first time I had done a virtual launch. I think that was one of my first Zoom events. And I thought, wow, this is crazy. This, I mean, this is really wild. Um, but gosh, a lot more people came to this virtual event than come to the in-person ones. That could be an interesting way to promote books in the future. And I didn't know, I didn't know <laughs> what I was saying, but it was, it was one of the most disorienting, exhausting periods I can remember in my whole life trying to promote these two books in a time of acute global and specifically American crisis. Um, everyone, everyone was losing their minds. Everyone was so frightened. People, uh, people were dying in, in huge numbers and it felt totally out of control. And of course our government at the time in the United States was not particularly interested in um, supporting us. In, in this moment of intense fear. But it was also a moment where I got to see something in action uh, that we call um, disaster socialism. You know, we have this, this myth, especially in American media, especially in, in Western, white Western media, that in moments of crisis, people will be out for themselves. People will, you know, say, you know, forget my neighbor, forget my friends, forget my family. It's just, it's just me. And I'm going to, make sure that I get the things I need. And we we see all over the world over and over again, that that's just not true. That's just not what we do. Human beings in moments of acute crisis try to help each other as best we can, no matter what. And during that period of time, I got to see both in my neighborhood, you know, people sharing food and giving away masks and talking to each other about how to stay safe and how to support each other and themselves and organizing like, you know, ways to be social um, so they wouldn't lose their minds. And I also saw in the literary community, people stepping up left and right, trying to figure out ways 
to support each other and to support each other's books and to support each other's work. Um, and I benefited from that immensely. You know, I, I got to say to my friends, hey, I know everything's a lot right now, but I'm trying to promote Upright Women Wanted. Is that something you can support? And every everybody to a person was like, absolutely tell me what I can do. Because in those moments, we're desperate for ways to help each other. We, we all that we want to do is help and support each other. Um, and that was really heartening and made me feel a lot less afraid of what was going on. As you're, um, you become more and more famous over the last, say, five years, and as a writer, and you became a fairly established name, have you been able to meet any of your heroes, writing heroes, and kind of uh, talk to them? What has it been like in that regard? It's, I, can't, I cannot describe to you how unreal it has been. I've gotten to meet so many of my writing heroes. Um, I've, I've I'm not going to name names because I try and play it pretty cool when I'm meeting people so that mm -hmm. we can talk as, as human beings instead of me establishing myself as a fan who they then have to take care of in the interaction. That's something yeah. that I, I I talk a lot about with actually um, upcoming authors who are saying, I'm kind of overwhelmed. It seems like people are treating me differently. And part of what you have to do is realign yourself to understand that when you talk to a fan, you're in a position of some power in the interaction, you, you have the power to make them have a great day or a really terrible day. Um, and I, I try to, I try not to put other people in that position. I try to say, you know, I love and respect your work. Let's, let's talk to each other's people while inside I'm shrieking at the top of my lungs because I'm like, I'm getting to talk shop with someone who I think is one of the most brilliant writers of the last 30 years. Um, and, and it's incredible. It's also, it's very disorienting. I've become friends with some of these people. There's some of these people who I send holiday gifts to and they, they send me their holiday cards. And like, you know, when we get together at a conference, we sit down and, and goof off together. Um, and it, it's incredible. It's, it's an incredible feeling. I cannot overemphasize how lucky I am to get to be writing in a time where some of my peers are absolute geniuses who are creating work that I think is going to influence the world of literature for the rest of time to come. And the fact that I get to say like, hey, congratulations on your book release. I hope you get to take a nap today is pretty exciting. <laughs> Some of my favorite writers, uh, Rod Serling or Harlan Ellison, uh, and so many more have been able to use their writing to discuss uh, many topics, some, some uncomfortable, some you know very uh, hard to talk about. Um, and I feel like just talking to you just now, um, you're, you're you know, a very political person, you're very interested in social issues. Have you been able to kind of use um, you're starving on the rise to kind of talk about some issues and kind of make some difference? I definitely have been able to talk about issues. I hope I've been able to make a difference, but of course we can't know, which is like yeah. one of the, one of the most brutal parts I think of being someone who cares deeply about things in a time of crisis and upheaval is you, you really can't know if you've made a difference or not. Um, I use my platform as best I can. Uh, I, I have a newsletter called Stone Soup, and I use that to basically give people things to, to do. I will say, hey, there's this horrible thing happening in the world. You're sitting at home feeling paralyzed and awful about it. Here's some things that, here's some actionable things you can do to go and help make other people's lives better, right? There, let's say like there's been a, a horrible hurricane that has taken out all of the um, electricity on an island, populated by millions of people. Here are the vetted and verified organizations you can go support with your volunteer time or your money or your household goods to help people get through that crisis. Um, I, I also offer personal emotional support on the level of trauma care. I'm, I'm very invested in and spent years really focused on learning about how we can care for ourselves in moments of trauma and in the aftermath of trauma. And so I share resources for things like central nervous system regulation, you know, 
if you're feeling like everything around you is too loud and you can't seem to eat and you're nauseated and you, you, you're cold all over, you can't stop shaking. Your central nervous system is not regulating itself uh, according to the circumstances your body is currently in. Let's, let's get it back in the mode it should be in. Um, and then of course, I also try to offer through that newsletter community space. Um, the Stone Soup Supper Club is the, the paying subscriber community. It's a pretty small amount of money, but it makes it so that you not everyone has access to that community space. So we, we keep out the bad actors and the fascists um, and people in there support each other through times of hardship. And that's kind of the micro community um, care that is so vital, especially in the atomized American culture. Um, and then of course my, my work in, in my novels and in my writing, um, some is, is more explicitly anti-fascist than others. You know, all of my work is very much about complexity and kind of the queerness of the human soul in a way that I hope leads people to think more slowly about others and, and about their interactions with others and about what the world can possibly be. Um, and, and my writing kind of goes all the way across the spectrum from that subtle approach to trying to change how people think to a book like Upright Women Wanted, which is explicitly about a near future fascist controlled American Southwest and queer people trying to survive um, and find each other in that landscape. And the, the bad guys are very explicitly fascist cops in that world, in that book. Um, and it is not subtle. <laughs> <laughs> so I do what I can everywhere I can. I, I hope it moves the needle. Um, and if it doesn't, I hope that it gives people some refuge in a really difficult world. Many times fiction or art in general can be transformative for people. I know that many authors have had really big impacts on my life. Have you ever met somebody who's a fan of your work that uh, told you about um, how you've impacted their life and has it had it touch you? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, as I said earlier, um, I have fans who will tell me about kind of the darkest moments of their life and, and how my work was with them in those moments. And that touches me so deeply. Um, the thing that, that I think moves me most is, I'm, I'm like very emotional about this. Um, the fans who I have who are incarcerated, um, the oh. American prison system is, massive and brutal and exploitative and turns people effectively into slaves serving corporations and what people are or aren't allowed to read is very tightly controlled i don't know if this is still the case but at least for a while there my work was allowed in american prisons and i would get requests from people saying can i buy a book and send it to you and you sign it and you send it to this incarcerated loved one of mine. Um, and I, I, I have worked with bookstores local to um, prisons to send work to people who, who want it in this terrible period of their lives when they are being treated as less than human by the state. And that it moves me so much and it also makes me feel that the deep inadequacy of something like sending a book. Um, it, it makes me feel like, wow, I can really make a difference and like, wow, I'm not making nearly enough of a difference. Um, and it, it also makes me just wanna use my work to say more. Um, so everything I write, I feel, I feel like I'm pushing further into that space. The things that I think will not make it to those people are my, my original comics, which are very explicitly about these exploitative systems. Um, but I, hope that whatever they do get to read in there brings them a little bit of power in a moment that can feel very powerless. You're currently working on a publication titled The Personal Canon's Cookbook. Can you talk to us about this work and what do you want to see from it? Yes, this is my this is my bright spot of 2023. <laughs> As I was I was looking back over my work of 2022, I've been working very hard this year and 
it's been really difficult work, lots of research into high control groups um, and cult dynamics and, and uh, again, the privately owned prison system and, and American fascism. And I was like, I need, I need something that will make me feel the way that I felt during those first six weeks of lockdown when we were all connecting over things. You know, we were scared and everything was a mess the way it is now, but we were connecting and I, I need that. I need, I need something with that. And I'd been thinking for years about wanting to write something about the way food shapes and defines us to ourselves and our communities. Um, and, and I had also been thinking about wanting to invite more voices. You know, I, I did a series called Personal Canons back in 2021, I wanna say, that was all about the stories that have shaped people. What stories belong in your canon of literature um, that you think are most important to the person you are today. And I decided to launch this series, The Personal Canons Cookbook. It is a series that invites people to share what food has meant to them. You know, what's the what's a meal that changed you forever? What's what's a food that is defines you to your community? Um, and it, it's an open call for submissions. Um, it's a paid writing opportunity. I'm I'm able to pay a quite generous per word rate. And the ask is for a 1,000-ish word essay about some food or meal that has changed or defined you. And we'll be sharing those throughout 2023 with subscribers to Stone Soup. Uh, it's going to be free to read. It'll, it'll go out to everybody. And each essay will come with a recipe that readers can make in their home um, and, and try, even if as I suspect will be the case for me with some of these, even if they won't do a great job at all of them, because there's some some skill levels that we don't all have, myself in particular. But it, it's really the trying that matters. Every time I make a recipe that a friend has sent me, I feel this sense of blossoming connection. I feel this incredible, like deeply human sense of knowing each other across space and time. Um, and whenever I return to a recipe that has been shared with me by someone, whenever I make it a little bit my own, I think, wow, we are we are so connected through this. And it is one of, I think, the best parts of being alive. Um, so that that's the series. It'll be launching in 2023. There's still plenty of time for people to send in their submissions. I don't know when this is going live, but um, our submission window closes on December 31st of 2022. And uh, people from outside the US are strongly encouraged to submit. Um, Black, Indigenous, people of color are strongly encouraged to submit. I'm hoping to share a really wide range of voices and recipes with these readers. And I, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be my favorite part of the year to come. I have no doubt. Do you have any advice for people that are uh, struggling with them? Um writing and becoming published? You know, I, I always hesitate to give advice. When I was a kid, my friend's mom sat me down. I don't know what was going on through her head. It just came out of nowhere, but she sat me down and she said, never give advice, only tell people what you would do in their position because you can't know their circumstance. And if you give them advice and it doesn't work, they'll be mad at you forever. And I was like, all right, filing that away in the old noggin. And so I always <laughs> hesitate to give advice with few exceptions. And one exception is persevere. Um, writing is an incredibly difficult job and it often doesn't come with reward. It often doesn't come with immediate reward. It, maybe it doesn't come with any reward at all. It's very hard and the thing that makes people succeed at writing is that they keep doing it. The reason that there are authors who are successful who are not as good at writing as some authors who are not successful is because they just kept doing it. And it's easy to get ground down, especially if you are a member of a more vulnerable um, demographic 
than some of the authors who have an easier time with worse craft in publishing. This is a very white field. It's a very Western field. It's still a pretty male field, although not nearly so much as it has been historically. And it can feel really demoralizing to know that the cards are stacked against you. But the key is to keep on doing it. Part of why I had success early in my career is because I wrote 27 short stories in a year. That's a ton of short stories. And I just kept sending them out. I sent them out everywhere. I, I, every time one would get rejected, I would send it back out right away. And that's, that's what you have to do. And I, I encourage young writers to bring that philosophy into their lives as well. Um, our lives are not always rewarding. Sometimes they're really hard. Sometimes it is difficult to understand or imagine any reason to keep on doing what we're doing, um, even when what we're doing is just existing. But you have to keep doing it. You, you just have to. Um, even when you can't imagine success in your writing career, even when you can't imagine it feeling good to wake up in the morning tomorrow, the thing to do is to continue until something is different. And that that's the closest I'll come to advice. What's next for you? Right now I am I am working on um, an original comic series called Know Your Station with my co-creator, Liana Kangas, um, who is a completely brilliant artist. It is a very fun comic through Boom Studios that is about a bunch of billionaires who fled Earth to live on a space station to escape global climate collapse and who start getting brutally murdered. Um, it, it's, again, not subtle. <laughs> all of the billionaires on this space station are modeled on real life billionaires um, and their crimes against humanity are pulled from the biographies of people who are alive and sitting on most of the world's capital today. And uh, this series is getting to ask the question, would it really be so bad if someone started horribly murdering these people? Um, it's, it's so much fun. It's at very uh, NBC's Hannibal meets White Lotus. Um, we're having a great Ooh. time. The first issue just came out. The next issue comes out in January, and you can get it anywhere comics are sold. And then, of course, the Personal Canons Cookbook uh, through Stone Soup, my newsletter, starting in January of 2023, which I hope your listeners will tune in for. Yeah, I didn't put this question down, but I'm just curious. Are you a comic book fan? Um. That's another one that I hesitate to answer the same as with the advice question, because that can mean so many different things to so many different people. I will say that That's I love true. I guess comics. it's a dangerous question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love comics. I love reading comics. I'm not an authority on comics, um, mm -hmm. but I, I love them and I love getting to work in comics. The collaborative nature of that medium, I think, is unlike any other, and it is a real blast. And I, I love getting to getting to read comics and learn more about them. Um, I think one of the best people writing in comics today is Alyssa Wong, who writes for Star Wars um, and uh, Marvel, and is currently writing a run of Deadpool that is like so much fun and really bonkers. Um, and so if if your if your listeners are looking for a comic to check out that isn't mine, I hope it's that one. <laughs> Do you have any favorites? Yeah, I love. Um, I love, uh, well, my co-creator, Liana Kangas, uh, wrote True Cult, which is about a deal with the devil in a burger joint. Um, <laughs> again, super fun. And then, of course, the, like historically, um, the comics that kind of very much made me the person who I am today, um, I feel deep connection in my heart to ElfQuest and mm. yeah, to yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the original Spider-Man comics. And I actually really loved... Um, Ultimates, the, the Spider-Man Ultimates. I know a lot of people weren't crazy about those, but they really kind of shaped my understanding of storytelling in a way. Um, and I, I, that was part of like my my journey into loving comics. 
Sarah, I want to thank you for being on the podcast. I've really enjoyed getting a chance to talk to you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. That was my conversation with Sarah Gailey, who's written Just Like Home, Eat the Rich, and Magic of Liars and More. We have links to those publications in the bio as well as the website. Also, we want to let you know that on Friday, we're going to be having author Jenna Helwig on, who has written Baby Led Feeding, Bare Minimum Dinners, and more. I had a really great time talking to Jenna, and you're going to really love my conversation with her. Hope you're enjoying the new year and getting a chance to look at some uh, new cookbooks that may have been gifted to you over the uh, holiday season and try out some new things in this year. Um, I hope you're all doing very well, and I'm looking forward to a really wonderful, productive, and energetic new year. Keep on cooking. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.